Okay, am I still, is my volume still there? Studying the self who likes to get her own way. And I'll give you a real life example of this in my practice that I've been working with. Um, in his text, Genjo Koan, translated as actualizing the fundamental point, Dogen Zenji, our founder of Soto Zen, says that to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by myriad things. Uh, Joko Beck, who was a former teacher in San Diego, Zen Center, has a collection of essays entitled Nothing Special, Living Zen. And she describes this forgetting the self as a change from experience to experiencing, sort of from a noun to a verb. She says, ordinarily, we live our lives in a series of encounters that we imagine with things outside of ourselves. And life becomes dualistic, self and object. Uh, and she says, there's really no problem with this process unless we believe it. So when we believe we're meeting objects all day long in the form of other beings or in the form of sentient or insentient beings, we react in terms of our own emotional associations, in terms of ourself structure, our memories, our fantasies, our hopes, our expectations, what we want, mostly what we want and what we don't want. Um, it results from our past conditioning. So when our world consists of objects, we guide our life by what we expect from each object. And this she calls constructing experience. In contrast, experiencing or forgetting the self is a state of peaceful abiding, peacefully dwelling as unceasing change in the present moment. Peacefully dwelling as unceasing change in the present moment. Um, and when experiencing, we're attentive to the genuine sound, taste, touch, all the senses and perceptions that are changing moment to moment, intrinsically empty of our past conditioning. So there's a great freedom in experiencing to respond creatively in the reality of the present moment, rather than respond with habitual responses that are in accord with the limited views of our past conditioning. Once I made a, I have a, I'm retired now, but I have a past career as a clinical psychologist. And one time I made an observation to our senior Dharma teacher, Reb Anderson, from the field of clinical psychology about the self. And then I asked him a question about the self. And I said that uh, my profession in clinical psychology had taught me that from infancy onward, there's hardly anything more important in human experience than the development of a self as far as psychology goes. That it, without a stable and coherent sense of self, we're almost helpless in the world. If we can't recognize the, the boundary between ourselves and others, we are bound for emotional and mental illnesses and great harm and suffering to ourselves and others. So I asked Rabbi, I said, how is it that this self, which is so crucial in human development and to which human evolution is so strongly directed, how is it that it causes us so much trouble that in order to awaken, we have to forget about it? And uh, Reb's answer was, it's not the self that causes us so much trouble. It's what is what is attached to the self. 
And so you could say that when we study the self, we're looking into our attachments. At times, our struggle to relinquish these attachments. Uh, in our text, the Shin Shin Ming or trust in mind, Kanchi Sosan, venerable ancestor, is translated as saying, if you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. So uh, one way to study the self is to study our attachments to these preferences, to wanting and not wanting. And some of our strongest attachments to what we want or don't want naturally arise in our interactions with other people. Uh, when something's important to us, we typically prefer to get our own way. Or maybe it's just me. Anybody else? <laughs> okay, there's a couple. We generally prefer to get our own way. Of course, since the persons that we're interacting with also have preferences and also like to get their own way, relationships often generate conflict. Uh, anger, blame, all types of unhappiness, alienation, in a word, suffering. Uh, so one way to study these attachments and preferences are likes and dislikes that cling, that cling to the self so tightly is to acknowledge them and bring them to practice, to sit wholeheartedly. First, we have to identify our attachments, which is not always easy because the self can be kind of tricky. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but when we can identify our attachments and preferences and acknowledge them, sit with them wholeheartedly, especially our intense attachments uh, to our opinions, to being right, to prevailing in an argument, to uh, getting our own way. Uh, we sit with them, we bring them to practice discussion, and oftentimes we catch a glimpse of what's behind the curtain of these attachments, an underlying vulnerable or tender feeling from which the intensity and persistence of these attachments springs. Uh, these intense attachments and the underlying feelings that are equally intense are what James Finley, who was a student of Thomas Merton, poetically calls unresolved matters of the heart. And they're sometimes rooted in previous losses, unresolved conflicts, needs that were unmet at important times in our development. We don't have to look too far for these unresolved matters of the heart because they present themselves to us repeatedly to a greater or lesser degree in our habits of mind, speech, and behavior. So often if we fully acknowledge and with compassion attend to these unresolved matters of our heart, our strong desires to control events, to get our own way, to exert our preferences can begin to relax a little bit and it's sort of a step toward forgetting the conditioned self and opening up a little bit more freedom. So here I'd like to tell a little story of a situation where it was difficult for me to let go of an attachment to getting my own way. And then talk a little bit about my attempts afterward, after the events to study the self and what resulted from them. So these events happened back in November, 2020 eight months into the pandemic. And you might remember then that 
we had all been through a long period of near total lockdown. There were no vaccines as of yet. And it was a time of stress, isolation, and anxiety. And one very foggy day that November, eight months into the pandemic, I had a, a routine doctor's appointment, Scotts Valley. I went to Scotts Valley, very, very foggy, gray day. You know, it, it really just seemed like the whole world had been gray for months. It was just, you know, that endless series of hopeless news reports and people locked in their homes. And it was a, it was a time of, it was a great time. I'll just say it was a great day and a great time. So the, I parked at the clinic. The parking spaces happened to be right along an alley. Uh, it was a routine appointment. After my appointment, I went back to my car and I looked directly across the alley and I noticed there's a long driveway leading to a house way, way, way far back, way far back from the road. But next to the driveway and closer to the road, there's a chicken coop. And I just have to say it was an exceptional chicken coop. I mean, it was like, it was beautifully designed. It was spacious and shiny and just bursting with these feathered, colorful beings that were just chattering and dancing around and clucking and, and just scratching and just full of life and color. And it was such a contrast to the grayness of the day and the pandemic. And it, it was so beautiful, right? And right next to the chicken coop, there was a little sort of a gatehouse, a little one room sort of A-frame with a little pointy uh, roof and uh, painted in a bright blue, sort of a lacy trim, sort of a little gingerbread gatehouse. And the whole effect, honestly, it was like a magical pandemic oasis. It was just like, oh my goodness, it couldn't have been more charming or delightful or attractive. And, you know, it was like that moment in The Wizard of Oz when, uh, you know, Dorothy, she's been through the tornado, the house crashes, she opens the door on Munchkin Land, and all of a sudden the entire film turns from black and white into color. And it was really just, it was magical. So I'm standing there, I'm taking it in, and you might say it was a few moments of just pure experiencing because it caught me totally off guard. And it just, it was just such a shock to experience joy eight months into this grueling experience that we were all having. And I'm, I took a, I, I, I crossed the alley and I took a, a few steps into the driveway to just get a better look. I wasn't, you know, I was keeping my distance because it's a pandemic. I'm about 40 feet away from the chicken coop. I'm wearing a face mask but I do take about 10 steps onto the driveway. So after a few seconds, the door to the little gatehouse opens and a woman comes out and she looks at me and she says, can I help you? And, you know, everybody's seen like in a cartoon or graphic no novel, when the character speaks, there's a, like a, a speech bubble. And in, in her speech bubble were the words, can I help you? But the bubble itself was just like frozen into a block of ice with pointy icicles. And I mean, there was, her tongue was just cold. She did not want to help me. She wanted me to like turn around and take 10 steps and get off her driveway. She wanted me to leave right away, which you didn't have to be a trained psychologist to pick up. But since I was one anyway, I had absolutely no doubt that she wanted me to get out of there. So immediately my mind switches from experiencing to making an effort to shape the experience in accord with my own needs, my own desires. I, I knew she wanted me to leave, but I continued to stand there. I, 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 did, I wasn't ready to give up the chickens. 
So I, I, I thought I tried to disarm her with my friendly charm. So I, I just, you know, was trying to be friendly. I said, I'm not, I'm not coming any closer. You know, I'm, I got my face back, I'm masked, I'm way back here. I just wanted to get a, a look at your girls. They're, they're so beautiful and your whole setup is so beautiful. Uh, to which she responded, do you know you're on private property? With, you know, sort of more tension in her voice. And so her message is clear. Why am I still, I'm, I'm starting to wonder why I'm still standing there because I'm not, her mess, she wants me to leave. I look at my feet, they're not moving. Instead, I start to think about private property. Like, does she understand the origins of private property? How all, of, you know, I mean, all this land was stolen. I mean, I'm, she had asked me a yes or no question. Did I know it was private property? So I said, yes. But it was the strangest thing because I still didn't move after getting all these direct messages. So now she's starting to get angry. I don't really blame her, but I just couldn't move. I was like frozen into this block of stubborn, solid resistance. And then she says, you're not supposed to be here and no one is, and people keep doing this. So now it's, now I, I start to empathize with, you know, her frustration, her unhappiness and her sense of futility. And my, the spell sort of broke on my spell of resistance. So I said, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you, I'll leave. And I did. And then when I got back to my car, I saw the other end of her driveway. It turned out this driveway, it was at the chicken coop, then went all the way back to the house, then came all the way around in half of a circle. And the driveway came out at the other end in another entrance down a ways. And it was so funny because this other entrance had a big chain across it and all these signs like, do not enter, do not trespass. And a big, a bad dog is on duty and all this. And I thought, you tricky person. Why didn't you just put one sign down by your chicken coop? I wouldn't have even stepped onto your driveway. But anyway, there I was. I pro it, that probably would have deterred me, you know, if I saw one of those signs. But so later on, I thought, I'm going to process this incident and write it down and figure it out. Because what in the heck was going on with me? This woman wanted me to leave, and I was just so stubborn. I, I, I wouldn't. So I wrote down the, act, the uh, incident. I reflected quite a bit on it and um, how attached I was to get in my own way. It was almost a visceral attachment in the face of a clear message. I just couldn't let go of it. Uh, so what, you know, I, I made a self-study. I, I journaled about it. I sat with it. I reflected on it. What emerged was a self-attachment that's very, very familiar to me. I mean, I knew it was more than just, I want to see the chickens. Sometimes when I'm told to do something I don't want to do, and especially if I feel it's unfair, I push back and there's an aspect of myself that just says, you can't make me. No, I'm not going to do it and you can't make me. It's not very mature. It's not something adults usually say to each other. Although I have to say once time I did witness it with two grown males in the staff meeting. Maybe you were there, die, I don't know, but it was quite the incident to grown men standing chest to chest saying, you can't make me as I can. But normally adults don't say that to each other, but that's what was underlying my stubborn resistance. Now, our, our, our beloved late teacher Thich Nhat Hanh was fond of teaching us that uh, when we can sense and touch and acknowledge a hurt or a wounded place in ourselves and hold that place in compassion, transformation and healing will arise. And often if we study a habit, a self-attachment, a resistance, all the way to the root, we discover 
vulnerable feelings that are there, sadness, pain, grief, even terror. And we find something fundamental in this attachment that clings so strongly to the ordinary self and sometimes gets us into trouble. Uh, and it clings so strongly, these habits, exactly because they developed in order to protect and help and sustain the vulnerable self in earlier adverse conditions. It's the ingenuity of the self and the suffering of that vulnerable self deserves boundless compassion. So I, I have a history of practice with this desire to get my own way. It's nothing new to me um, to try to take responsibility and give respect and care to this one who says, you know, you can't make me. I want to get my own way. Uh, and in our practice, we have a beautiful uh, every morning service. We fully avow our accountability for ourselves, for the self that's born through body, speech, and mind. Uh, we don't blame ourselves or others. We take responsibility with genuine compassion for ourselves. Um, it's, it's a practice that we call uh, formless repentance. And uh, in his Ehe Kosu Hotsuganman, Dogen says, by revealing and disclosing our lack of faith and practice before the Buddha, we melt away the root of transgressions by the power of our repentance. So there's something very powerful in assuming full accountability, full responsibility for our, the formations of our body, speech, and mind, and not, you know, not having a temptation to blame somebody else for the conflicts we get into. We can also engage in what Thich Nhat Hanh described as a composting practice, uh, cultivating the conditions for transformation of self-attachments. And um, with compost, um, every expert gardener knows, and Liz could tell us, you add your ingredients and you, you keep turning it. And the ingredients of this type of composting as our thoughts, our feelings, our, our journaling, whatever triggers the need to get my own way, whatever's triggering our intense attachments, you turn it in zazen and practice discussion. You let the compost pile develop. Uh, you give it air in zazen and you practice patience and give it time. Most of all, compost doesn't happen without time. But the process of transformation belongs to transformation itself. So we can cultivate trust and we can cooperate and the way accomplishes itself. Uh, in the Xin Xin Ming, again, the way is perfect. Like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Time and patient composting practice eventually bring forth deeper layers of vulnerability. And in my case, I've learned over the years that under the stubbornness of having to get my own way, under the defiance of you can't make me, there lies grief and compassion for the self for all the times in my youth that my caregivers succeeded in controlling me with force or threats of force 
for all the times my self-assertion, again, in, in my youth was met with abandonment or rejection. How harsh strategies based on punishment and shame and religion were employed to control my body and mind. How there was no room for disagreement in my family, in my extended family, in my ethnic community, in my church or in my school without severe repercussions. So you can't make me was my rescue plan. It's a, it's a fundamental self-assertion for control, for autonomy, for integrity of the self, for self-determination. And I once needed it greatly in order to grow up. And Jean is fond of saying, you know, I will never disparage ordinary mind. And, and you know, this is sort of why it's, uh, it deserves our boundless compassion. And it has helped us so much along the way, even though now it's time to forget that I need my way all the time or most of the time when somebody pushes on me. So after all these decades, though it's still a partially unresolved matter of the heart, and it may always be attached to my sense of self under certain conditions, um, but because I've encountered my attachment to get in my own way repeatedly over many years and undertaken a lot of composting and healing practices and studied it at the root and learn to hold it in compassion. It's, it's starting to loosen up more. And sometimes I can laugh at myself when I feel very strongly about getting my own way. One of my favorite things to say to myself is my way is the best way. It is just the best way. And there's no better way than my way. Such the best way. So um, in wrapping up, I'd, I'd also like to note that in the story I told you, um, my white privilege allowed me to get away with such outrageous behaviors as standing in another person's driveway, a white woman like myself, when they're angry and they want you to leave. Um, my behavior was disrespectful, but it was also entitled. I didn't have any fear of being attacked or uh, apprehended for trespassing because I knew those consequences were unlikely to happen to me as a white woman. So my sense of entitlement um, as part of white privilege is another aspect of self-clinging that contributed to my lack of empathy, uh, my lack of compassion, and my lack of cooperation with the chicken rancher. Uh, to whom I would very much like to express my deepest gratitude, along with all of you. Thank you very much. Should we chant? Should I chant, Jean? The... Yes. Okay. Please. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable.
I vow to become it. 